listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there. Today we're going international. You're going to hear myself and an Australian listener named Dan Bashford discuss Kansas City organized crime and Australian organized crime. Now let's get on with this show from down on. Kansas City, like every other city, had a group of black handers, that, that most of whom the names didn't survive on up into even up to the 30s. It didn't seem to me like they... Uh, yeah, absolutely. They did the usual things of victimizing other Italian shopkeepers and other Italian businessmen and other t- Italian businessmen. They get stuck into those people. Yeah. And- what, what was really interesting is I was studying up on that. I did a show on, we had a policeman in 1912 named Joe Ramo, who was one of the early Italian policemen, and he lived down what we call the North End. There's an area just north of downtown. It's called, was historically called the North End or Little Italy, and that's where all the Italian immigrants live, right next to the city market, the produce market, as you guys are familiar with there in Australia. Italians, they are attracted to the uh, produce business. Man, they have a stranglehold to the <laughs> right up to today in Melbourne and, and up here in the produce market, at Flemington Market. Yeah. That's been going now for about 40, 50 years. They've had a stranglehold on that. Interesting. In Andretta as opposed to the Sicilian Mafia, but you've got the same guys doing the same thing, you know. Yeah. Ways, really. Interesting. You know, another interesting thing about those black hand times is your other criminals would try to emulate the black handers by threatening shopkeepers and send them notes that made it look like it was from the black hand, but it really wasn't. It was, it was really what we affectionately call Peckerwoods or non-Italians, you know, be Irish or German or English or something, gangsters or just two-bit criminals who would extort money. Specific to Kansas or did that broadly more across the U.S.? Yeah, You know, I don't know for sure. I just know what sure happened here in Kansas City as I was reading, pulling up old newspaper articles about the Black Hand days and about this Joe Ramo trying to figure out what happened after he was killed by some black handers. There's no doubt about it, it was some black handers. You know, it was quite clever, really. Yeah. From a, you know, in relation to an extortion technique, if you're going to emanate someone who's successful, then I guess that that's going to work. Yeah. Plus they had this reputation being really dangerous and impossible to do anything about with this closed society that helps in your extortion efforts too. I mean, less likely go to the police. Of course, the, the police in 1900s, 1910, 1912 were not all that whippy anyhow when it came to dealing with uh, especially any kind of ethnic minority. They hired a couple of Italian guys to primarily police the Italian neighborhoods. Yeah, okay, okay. Now, I will say that the English and Irish-dominated police force did tear the what we call the North End apart after one of their own, Joe Ramo, was killed, and they basically shut it down. Matter of fact, I found a newspaper article that one of, they called them pizza joints. There were several Italian restaurants and down there, and people would, you know, the English and Irish Germans would go down to the North End and eat 
Italian food like they still we still do today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm sure you have the same thing in the big cities in, in Australia and Sydney. And this guy was complaining to newspaper reporters about, you know, hey, we're all honest down here. We're not all those other guys. If you somebody loses a wallet or a watch or something in my restaurant, why, people call back down and I've got it for them. We're all honest. You don't need to tell those police to just let up on it so people can come back down, let us open back up. Because they really did. They shut down. Yeah, we we still get that here. Only till a couple of years ago, there was, um, we get strong in Hundreda up here, as you know. You and Cam did an excellent episode, just out of interest. Yeah. And only a couple of years ago, there was young guys running around with handguns, which is unusual for Australia, sticking holes in each other and, you know, all that kind of criminality you get. Yeah. And yeah. those were largely in the uh, Italian areas where Italians are, but Basically, nowadays, everyone frequents. Yeah, but Joe DiGirolamo, he, he was one of the more forward-thinking guys in his family. They were able to move on from the black hand into into the 20s. Prohibition started, and really, the younger guys, I believe, if I remember, I'm pretty sure he was one of the younger guys and came out of the black hand and formed the more modern criminal s- syndicate and formed this, what they called the Sugar Shack Gang with some other guys like Tano Lococo and Joe Filardo. And they really cornered the market on sugar because sugar is what you needed to make alcohol with and make beer with. And they start, they're the ones that then kind of modernized the mafia because of prohibition. You know, if you think about it, if we hadn't had prohibition, I don't know if we would have had the modern mafia because it was such a huge moneymaker. Had that period of 12 to 13 years, you would have never have given them all that money to begin with, and it's an argument I've heard before. Um, uh, Plus, it was a business that they could go into. So you take an immigrant population, the young men, and they're kind of kept squeezed out by the native population, although they weren't really native particularly. The, the Indians were the only ones that were native, but the, the Germans and the Irish had all a lot of the businesses, and, and the English had the banking sewed up, and the Irish had all the government jobs sewed up, and, and the Germans had a lot of the trade sewed up, and they protected their own, and they weren't going to let these foreign-speaking, darker-complected people in and so you've got these bright young men that are have immigrated from horrible circumstances i mean it's the same scenario that goes on today well it actually happened here too we had the english and the irish and the italians of course were kept out because the english and irish got over here 20 odd years earlier so when the irish italians rather started to emigrate there was no real jobs for them to move into there was no nowhere for them to earn so they started with their fruit and vegetables, and obviously the rest became history. They also got into a lot of other things. But the monopolization by the English and the Irish, to, to a large degree, gave rise to what became a mob in Australia. Yeah. And they're still going. They're still going strong yeah, over here. Because of the business aspect of prohibition, they formed companies and they formed, you got to have organization to make and distribute 
booze and there's big money in it, so you form an organization, the Black Hand, the Mafia. It was a perfect, already the structure was there, and they just set it up, and they started making a lot of money and attracting associates and other criminals, and they were then they were able to move into politics, and which is what they did. DiGiamo didn't particularly, but there were some younger guys that came along, uh, the structure that he and Tano Lococo and Joe Filardo and, oh God, I can't remember the other two Five Iron Men, but John Lazio was a little bit younger guy, and he was pretty smooth, and, and he moved right in with the local political machine. They dominated throughout the 20s and 30s in Kansas City because it was such an open city. Uh, it would have been a huge amount of money as well, I can imagine. Oh, yeah, because we had this bright Irish Thomas Pendergast political boss who, he was the only social net available for a lot of poor people. Before, actually, in one of your earlier programs. Yeah, but Pendergast was, he was a man of the people and he knew how to make a political deal. He, of course, protect the Irish. He had formed his own political organization, had a lot of government jobs and sewed up for people because that's how providing jobs and maybe some groceries, uh, there wasn't any welfare system, there wasn't any health care, there was nothing for people. Yeah. Whatever you could fend, however you could fend for yourself, you had to, you had to wrest satisfaction from society and safe. And uh, the Irish formed that organization and got a lot of political power. And they finally formed a relationship with the North End to control those wards over in the North End. Italian, and then there was a large black ward. The second ward was almost all black, and they were able to then forge cooperation with them. And so that gave the mob, because they already had control of the North End, that gave them a lot of political power through that time. And they provided those things that people wanted. Really, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, people wanted alcohol. They wanted to be entertained. Of course. And, and really, that's uh, that made it wide open for a lot of these black jazz musicians to perform and to hone their skills. So it's really part and parcel of American history all the way across the board. The music and culture, government, they were part of the whole American experience. And it sounds like you've got some similar similarities over there in Australia. I've never been able to get my head around the whole idea of prohibition um, <laughs> on a, on in relation to a whole country. Yeah. We love a drink down here just as much as anyone else, but the idea of the whole country through the House of Congress going, okay, it's banned. Yeah. I can't get my head around that idea. It's hard. Even for me today, it's hard to believe that we did that in this country. I'm not sure what overtook the country, but some momentary moment of madness overtook the country, and they said, let's have this experiment. There must have been a lot of problems with drunkenness or something just before they passed that constitutional amendment. I mean, it's a constitutional amendment. I mean, it takes a lot to amend the Constitution. You it for 13 years, too. I know. years is a fair stretch. I can't explain it. <laughs> okay. Okay, I just thought I'd ask you. Yeah, I know there's one guy I was going to ask you about. He's, um, what's his name? Charles Carol. Charles Carolho. Towards the end of Prohibition over there, he was in, from Kansas City. They picked him up on income tax evasion just as Prohibition ended. Carollo? Carollo? Yeah, yeah. He was kind of one of the first ones they, they put in jail during that time. He was... 
He kind of started that whole connection with Pendergast. He would have been John Lazia, who really moved up after Corolla went to jail, and he's the one that moved in. He even had an office right next to the chief of police during the 1930s and approved uh, who was going to be a police, that kind of thing. Corolla was just, he was one of those guys that came out of the Black Hand days and was quick to adapt to the modern times. He must have hated that, I tell you. Prohibition news, and he's straight in on income. (laughs) Yeah. That was pretty common, if you remember. Al Capone's the biggest example, but they tried, they made an income tax case on this John Lazia at the time, and he did a short period of time, a stretch of time. Matter of fact, a friend of mine's, her great uncle was his lawyer during that time. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, Casey Walsh is this guy's name. He's a podcast fan and actually a friend of mine. And I, when I practiced law, I practiced in the same building where his father practiced law. Jim Walsh, who was a Teamster lawyer, and Frank Walsh was their grandpa. And, and he was one of those Irish lawyers in the 30s that was pretty successful and had a lot of connections with the government and with political groups at the time. They were they were connected to both political groups. Irish had two Irish. Frank Walsh, would have, he defended John Lazia as in his income tax case. So that was the deal. They per- it pervaded all the way up into modern times in, in Jackson County, Kansas City, Missouri. It was really hard to make any kind of local cases against any kind of organized crime people. It, you got to leave it to the feds. And I guess that's the problem Chicago had. With yeah. their, they had that ward in Chicago. Oh, yeah. Was it just rotten as hell? Yeah, was well, yeah. Chicago's even more rotten than Kansas City was at the time in the twenty. I mean, at the seventies and eighties, it's it's maybe it's gotten a little bit better today, but it it was. I think it's clear cleaned up a lot. But when I heard about that first ward, I was just in shock. Just- yeah. But they owned it here. And so the feds and the feds at the time, the FBI was just getting started. Yeah. The federal law is a little less quick to change and not real nimble and flexible. Once it gets going, then it's really powerful. But all these federal, we didn't have the DEA and the ATF and all that. They had this fledgling FBI, but they had started collecting income tax. The income tax collectors had certain powers. And so they were the ones who really had the structure, the legal tools to do anything with these mob guys. Interesting. The FBI didn't really have a lot of legal tools, you know, and had to be, had to prove interstate crime. And that's why they got into stolen auto business so early on. They were big into stolen autos because stolen autos were often taken across state line. So it had to be some kind of interstate crime. If it was within a state, then the FBI back then had really no power. I know from my reading, there was one man who launched Racketeering Influence Organization Acts. And for years and years, no one knew what the damn hell this man was talking about. The power <laughs> that he actually gave to people broke the mafia in effect, especially yeah. in New York. Um, when he was finally understood, it took a long time for people to realise the extent of the power and the reach that that man actually had. Smart yeah. guy. Blakey. Blakey, yeah, Blakey, Robert Blakey. I actually went to a seminar he gave on that RICO Act back in, I don't know, must have been early 80s probably, uh, some intelligence unit conference that they would have in the United States. We have a, the National Organization of Intelligence Units. Harry, it's called a junket where it's a kind of a lot of food and drink. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Right. So we would meet up with other intelligence units from other parts of the United States a couple of times a year, and they'd have speakers come in. Blakely came, Blakey came in and explained that RICO Act, and I'll have to be honest, I didn't get it. <laughs> it was it was over my head back then for sure. I get it now. But it took me a lot of reading to understand yeah. just how powerful that actually was. And honestly, it wasn't really used for a number of years. It wasn't used at all well. They were still chasing their tail and, you know, doing this, bits and this, bits of Eastward and all the rest of it. Brilliant man, actually. Yeah, really. U.S. attorneys in different cities that his name Chertoff worked for Giuliani is in that fierce city. He was one of the early ones that got on to using it. In Kansas City, we had a man named Mike DeFeo who actually started the whole what we call the straw man caper, the bringing in, bringing the skim back from Las Vegas. And that was interstate. And that, and that was racketeer influence and corrupt organizations. You had an organization who was influenced by racketeers and it was corrupt and they had predicate act. For those of you guys out there that don't quite understand that. And it was hard for me to understand what law enforcement will to enforce RICO to take down a whole organization. They first have to find some what we call predicate acts. They have to find some regular violations of the law, and usually it'll be some kind of a murder, but it can be other violations of the law, assaults, any kind of a criminal, any criminal violation, find three or four of them, then they have to connect it to an organization in some manner. You need, that's when you need a storyteller. Uh, what we used for the skimming was wiretaps. So you've got people on wiretaps and hidden microphones telling somebody else to do something. And so then you can say, okay, this guy told this guy to do this, and he did it. And then this criminal act came out of that. So then you put it all together, and then you make a case on the whole organization by identifying the whole organization. Like we would get a storyteller from another city. We didn't have that informant in Kansas City that came in and said, this guy is the boss and this guy's the underboss. But we had a storyteller out of Chicago, and they brought him down, a guy named Ken Edo, brought him down to the skim trials, and then he was shown a picture. Was he the Ken Edo that got shot in the head and it didn't quite? Yeah, I listened to the episode with the ex-FBI agent. Right. Yeah. It was fantastic. Uh, Elaine Smith, who she made the case on Ken. He went around uh, to different mob trials and explaining, yeah, there is a mafia and this is how it worked. Show him a picture of the Chicago outfit and this guy tells this guy what to do and then he does this. And so you have to convince the jury that this is the mafia is an organization with hierarchy that gives orders that end up in criminal acts. But once you put all that together with your wiretaps, your storytellers, and some acts, you need to get like one good solid murder is the best one that you can make somebody on. If I remember in Fear City, they made that, they made a murder on that in Delicado, made the Carmine Galante murder from a fingerprint. And so there was a act, predicate act, the murder, and then they proved there was a commission, and then they could showed that how the commission would give those kinds of orders and hook it all up and then take the whole organization down rather than the leaders of it. Was it Joe Colombo wrote the book where he detailed the commission over one whole chapter? Uh, was it him or Joe Bonanno wrote that and detailed the commission? Yeah, they used that book to to help make that commission. I mean, you have a look through that book and it's all there. We all know now, but yeah. to read that for the first time, oh, man. I kind of see. I remember at the time it kind of seemed like fiction. <laughs> at the time, like wow. <laughs> we had the problem here at the fruit markets where there was people being blown up left, right, and center in Melbourne. Just cars going boom and all that kind of stuff. And 
12 gauge shotgun killings, but nothing like the sort of the organization, say, or even the outfit that occurred in the States. The, the, the outfit, those, those were some bad dudes, you know. But we did have a lot of problems in the 80s, especially the 80s, in the fruit and veg markets with the cannabis. They were bringing thousands of kilos of it down, huge quantities of cannabis. And the reason that is, is drugs in Australia are very, very expensive. That's why. So that, that bought them large amount of income. Interesting. Yeah, I have a question about that. And I noticed that the one show I did on the, the Drangetta, and they were all in the, involved in the marijuana business and a little bit in the cocaine business, but it seemed like primary marijuana. They had grow farms. Because Australia is a, it's an agricultural country, so there should be plenty of places to grow high-quality marijuana. You just got to get the good seeds from down in Southeast Asia, more than likely. Why was it such a lucrative thing? Seemed like Australia is isolated with thousands of miles from anywhere. And there was a huge kind of Woodstock hippie changing of the guard type. So there was this consumption or demand for for cannabis, and it was very, very expensive. And these guys thought, well, you know what? We can grow veggies up here. We can grow, we can grow hundreds and hundreds of kilos of dope. And that's what they were, they were, they were growing enormous amounts of cannabis, driving it all over Australia. And then, of course, one, one group would get into an argument with another group, a war would start, and someone would get blown up, police would get involved and all that sort of stuff. We still have those problems now with organised crime bringing in drugs, mainly due to the price of retail drugs, illegal drugs in this country being so expensive. Now, with all that money flowing around, I would imagine, I know it happened here. We didn't have too many problems in Kansas City, but it happened in a lot of smaller departments and in some bigger departments that were already prone to corruption. I would imagine there was a lot of police corruption because when you got all that money flowing around, it just follows. Point. Yes, 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 absolutely. We had three royal commissions. We've had New South Wales police have had a royal commission. They've had one in Queensland. They're about to have one in Victoria. And that wasn't mainly to do with the police and drugs. That was mainly to do with the police sort of giving a blind eye to nightclubs running all night and all that kind of stuff rather than I mean, yes, there were a few officers involved in drug dealing. It was mostly We have laws here so clubs can't stay open all night, but these joints were running 24 hours a day. And plus the police weren't earning a lot of money in comparison to to what these people were earning. So when they saw that money, they obviously, the few, decided to take it. It all came out in the Royal Commission. They had hidden cameras in police cars and they had detectives counting big wads of money going, thanks, mate, see you next week and all that kind of stuff and informants, they had wiretaps, they had, oh, you name it, the whole bit. And it happened over, well, 25 successive years in two states. 
I experienced, of course, is in Kansas City, and we had a lot of things like that in the 50s. I had a guy I worked with in the intelligence unit told me a story when he came on in, I want to say, 1954, 53. The first night that they put him in a police car, they put him with somebody else. And the guy, it was pickup night, and the guy went around to a bunch of clubs, picked up money all night long for everybody, and then at the end of the evening, he counted out a certain amount of money and laid it on the seat, looked at Ray, and his name was Ray Kinney, and he said, here, that's yours. Ray was kind of like me. He was a good old boy from the country, South Central Missouri, and, and he didn't take this job to do that. He said, no, no, I don't want that. Good on him. And he said he was never assigned to ride with anybody again after that night. He was by himself from then on, which was okay with Ray. He was he was a good policeman. And he, he was a tough dude. Here, um, who were ostracized for a number of years because they were honest. And yeah. so there was a large amount of police who were corrupt and then a large amount who weren't corrupt and they didn't want anything to do with the corruption. It took years and years of politicians pushing and pushing for these royal commissions and all the rest of it. And in, in the end, they had a whole lot of surveillance in police cars. It's all on YouTube if you want to have a look. And you see these armed detectives and head of detectives branches. Yeah, and they're being handed eight or 9,000, counting the money out and putting it in their underpants and he gets out. Then the next guy gets in the car and he counts his water money out and the next guy gets in the car. And they had these royal commissions into corruptions. They basically put these guys on the stand and these guys have lawyers. And they asked them leading questions. They said, have you ever, have you ever been offered a bribe? Have you ever had a counted money in a car or anything like that after a bust. And these guys go, no, no. And then they play the video of them doing the very same thing. Now you had about oh, 12 to 15 guys in a row all did the same thing. And it was sort of, I think it's cleaned up a lot nowadays though. Things have changed. New crowds come through. Younger police. Yeah. It's changed a lot. Each generation is a little bit cleaner, it seemed to me, like than the one before. I came on in a generation of a lot of guys that just fresh out of Vietnam. Now, the people before us were just fresh out of Korea in World War II. It was a different time back then. And, and a lot of people, they didn't seem problem taking the, what we call the clean money. Nobody would take any narcotics money back then. But the clean money, I, I remember guys, some of my peers even, they would, uh, on duty make money runs for the joints late at night they might they need to take cash so they somebody need to make a night deposit and that's kind of a dangerous thing to do for a joint because you got people hanging around joints and they notice that you go to that night drop every night carry a gun but if they get in with the local the district guy why he dropped by and they give him 20 bucks and he'd go make the night deposit for him so we had small corruptions like that or you could go back in there off duty and get free drink and i'll have to be uh, honest I, I took a few dr- free drinks but i never went any farther than that you gary have just how many free drinks <laughs> We've also got now these crime commissions that exist in each state, and they're basically a top-secret organisation of police chosen to look at examining police corruption. So they're basically above the law. They get they've got access to all the. I guess they're the equivalent of the FBI in that they've got the access to all the tech. They've got the black bag guys yeah, who do yeah, all the, yeah. you know, who, who have got all the tools and they've got access across jurisdictional lines. So having those crews there, they've been able to stop a lot of it, I think. But, yeah, um, yeah. you know, it, it changes slowly. Yeah. It changes. Well, it's it's a different sort of a deal. You know, the mob, they had some key people in Kansas City 
on the police department out of the 50s. They were really left over from basically the 30s and 40s, but they were had gotten to high-ranking positions, and they kind of straightened it out, but they always, and the politicians were in bed with the mob because the mob was in bed with the Teamsters Union, and the Teamsters Union can get people elected. It's a cabal of people and how that all worked. And those young Italian mob guys, they figured out in the 50s, as Nick Zavala, who was our boss for all those years, he figured out, he met the head of the local Teamsters Union and befriended him when both of them sat on a local Democratic Party council that was would meet and choose who the local party would back to run for local offices. How these things start, really. But uh, that's our straw man. That's still an incredible operation, the way that all went down. It's <laughs> yeah, still, well, that, that it's would be... Life. It's, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Unbelievable. That was really guys like Nick Savella, and there was a guy, Frank Balistrieri in Milwaukee, and a couple of different people in Chicago, Iupa, well, Cardo really kind of started it, getting in bed with these Teamsters and in Cleveland. Cleveland mob getting in bed with these labor unions. I've got a series coming up over the next three weeks called The Mob and the Teamsters. It's going to be a three-episode series. Cam and I did a, Cam did most of the research. He did a ton of research on this. And he's been a real boon to me because I worked on that movie last year and I really was having struggled and keeping everything going. And then he came in <laughs> doing the research. And so I would just read his research and then we discuss the, uh, his research about the mob. So, uh, and he's got accurate stuff. You know, I know enough whether it's accurate or it's, stories that somebody's dreaming up and he'd get the accurate stuff he's real careful going back to the mob and politics and the teamsters that was so smart of them to get in with the teamsters and the teamsters like working guys i remember back at that time i'm at this place where this teamster guy he doesn't really know who i am somebody brings up and i and i kind of needled him a little bit about the mob and the teamsters somebody else brought it up and i kind of said something about it kind of needled him and he said i said you know all that stuff that the government says about the mob and the teamsters and all that they're just trying to take away our power we're getting too much power for them and they're just trying to take it away. Those are all lies, fake news, as we say today. And he believed it. <laughs> yeah. Well, million dollars here. And he was a rank and file guy that he didn't, you know, he couldn't see that. He just saw the establishment was attacking him. And so the rank and file would keep those guys in. And they found those few corrupt people at the top, like Roy Williams. $1,500 a month, every month, month in and month out for a long time, when $1,500 was more like five, dollars $6,000 today. It was an incredibly smart move on their part to put that whole thing together, to get hold of the Teamsters, to get enough of the Guardians, to get that money through. And they just built one casino after another. And, oh, my <laughs> It's like a perfect storm, and I hate using that cliche, but it was it was a setup for that because Las Vegas was growing by leaps and bounds. It was becoming more and more popular nationwide. It was the only place like it in the entire United States until Atlantic City opened up, and there was more than enough demand, and they were building casinos like crazy, but regular what we call square john banks would not loan money for casinos they thought it was too risky yeah i've i've heard that the teamsters the the union pension fund had all this money you know i've i've said this before on podcasts i sat on the pension board of the police department i did it for six years after i retired and we had almost a billion dollars that we could invest any way we wanted we could have made a just how much money they actually had yeah really 
So they, yeah, you know, it's a lot of money back then. I mean, it's a lot of money nowadays, but uh, huge amount of money back then. The Midwest mobs are sophisticated enough. They just didn't go in and steal money from the tem- the pension fund. They influenced the pension fund to loan money to people that normally couldn't borrow money, and then that person had to kick them back cash money every month. I mean, it was it was genius, and they didn't have their hands on the directly on the pension fund at all. It just looked like they were making these loans to people. Nobody saw the straw man part of it. It's a straw man. Nick Savella. And it's a story I don't think's in Casino. And it's a story where they pick up one of these casino guys, fly him out to where this Nick Savella is, and he's got a light on in the room. Yeah. It's this poor bloke down. And he <laughs> says to him, you owe me a million and a half dollars. And the poor guy would have been absolutely shitting himself. You yeah. Know? It would have been good in the film, too. <laughs> it would have been. I was kind of surprised they didn't put that in. It was factual. That guy, Alan Glick, he testified to that at the trial. And they also, they could have got the Robert De Niro character in Bob because that's how Glick told the story, who was the owner of Tangiers in the movie and uh, of the Stardust. Lefty Rosenthal, who was a South Robert De Niro character, he's the one that went to Alan Glick and he said, you know, you've got to fly to Kansas City with me tonight. And they had a corporate jet, so they jumped on the jet and flew right to Kansas City and... I got off of it and took him right to the airport motel and had a room already ready. You can't make that stuff up. (laughs) No. Sat him down. First thing Nick Savella told him, according to Glick, was, if it was up to me, you wouldn't leave this hotel room alive. But let's talk. So, the black bag stuff. Yeah. Yeah. This is an opportunity to ask you a couple of questions. How much opportunity did you have to work with the black baggers who go in and on behalf of the police, obviously, with warrants? Yeah. And put the devices in and all that kind of thing. As a local officer, we didn't have a wiretap law during those times. We had a wiretap law later on for about a year, year and a half, and it had a what we call a sundown provision on it, and it had to be renewed um, every year, every every two years, I think. It had to be renewed. And the second time, first time it came up for renewal, nobody was really using it on a local level. We did one here in Kansas City, and I think St. Louis maybe did one, and the Highway Patrol did one, but we weren't successful with it, and nobody pushed to have it renewed. But the feds did all that. So, of course, we would help them by just putting on our uniforms. Uh, they'd only trust us in the intelligence unit, and we didn't normally wear uniforms. So we'd go check a marked car out of the garage, put on our uniform just drive around and and you know, i did that several times and the other guys did too during the 70s and the casino skimming investigation they were doing so many of them that they were doing it all the time one night we later on we were going to do one this story i haven't really i don't think i've even told it once i just happened to think of it it was actually after i came back as a sergeant in the intelligence unit they were going to put a camera and a microphone in a bookmaker's office and right over his computer because he would get on the computer this was after people were doing everything on computers it must have been in 91 or 92 so the keyboards were really noisy and yeah work out what's going on and right right and so they needed access to his office for quite some time of course that we follow him home 
and somebody sits on his house to make sure he doesn't leave again. But you never knew one of his employees that we had a little company and had two or three other employees. You wanted to make sure that if they showed up, because uh, they couldn't get them all sat down exactly where they were and sat on. And by sat on, I mean, you know, watching them and just waiting and letting anybody know if they moved. And these guys need to go in. So they first of all, there was an audible alarm on the outside of the building. There was a phone-in alarm. So they had to get in and spend some time on the outside of the building to get to get this whole alarm system interrupted so it wouldn't send off an alarm. We borrowed a truck from the Power and Light Company, a big boom truck. It's got a bunch of road closed signs and put several of our guys in working man's clothes and hard hats and just blockaded a whole block away around this building where this guy was. It's about two o'clock in the morning when we started. Just blockaded the whole thing around. Wouldn't let anybody go through there. And that way they were safe to spend the whole night there if they wanted to. Even if the owner had come, we'd said, you know, it's too dangerous. You can't go back in there. Of course not. <laughs> hey, so I'll we- tell you, the man you had on last week, I tell you what, he had some stories, and I'm sure there's not a lot he can talk about, but some of those stories when he when he was doing surveillance jobs were just incredible. Oh, I, oh, I know, I know. It was hard to get him to really come forth with so much more than what was in that fierce city. That was the Joe Catamessa. He was in the technical Interesting guy. division. He was. I, I tell you what, Dan, I couldn't believe that they got the FBI agents to get up that much information about what they did. They, it's really hard to get them to talk. I mean, it's just almost impossible. Now, like Joe and I were saying, all those techniques that you're talking about today, there's passe. Nobody's going to use them anymore for the most part. Right. He said, hey, just get in a computer and turn your cell phone into the microphone that you're in a location finder that you're carried around with you or plant a little something somewhere close to you and, and just get on the internet and then listen to you and watch you move here and there. I like I, those. I actually like those three episodes. I know a lot of people going, oh, John Alite was in it and this and that. I found that quite interesting. I, there was a lot of surveillance material. Yeah. There was a lot of recording material. I'd never seen that. I found the production value quite good. Yeah. My, oh, yeah, I did too. Hearing from the law enforcement too, from their perspective yeah, yeah. in relation to it, I thought it was pretty well done. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, it was. They had production values that were sky high. I'm telling you, I've made a couple of documentary movies that I don't know what they put out in production costs, but it was a lot. It was a lot. It was a multi-million dollar production, I promise you. Interesting, too. It was really interesting. I thought so. I mean, like you said, from a law enforcement standpoint, which is more interesting to me sometimes, and I like talking to the guys and kind of getting the inside story, but... But criminal stuff you hear all the time and see yeah, in the movie. Yeah. But to see the actual police work, the way they do their work and the constraints that they have to work with, it's yeah. far more interesting, you know, especially in the, in those little Italian areas. How are they yeah. in those places? <laughs> it's tough. <laughs> We did that once. We had a club. This was in the 90s, too. This was one of the last things that I was involved with when I came back as a sergeant. There was a small club over in what we called Little Italy or the North End, and it was where the younger guys would go. The older guys would go to what we called the Trap or the Columbus Park Social Club. The younger guys, somebody rented a building down there, and they played cards in there, and they just hung out in there and kind of emulated the older Italian guys. And it's kind of a, it's a cultural thing for the men to go to their... and do the usual... Yeah, do the usual stuff, play cards and talk about sports. Of course, there's going to be sports gambling in and around that. A couple of them weren't. These young guys were bookies, and they were making bets. The local U.S. attorney wanted to 
wanted information out of that. He asked us to get down there, do about a month-long surveillance to tell him everybody that was going in and out of there, all identified. And it's hard to do in that area. We got one, we had a female officer. She went down and found a landlord who had a upper-level apartment for rent. Told him that, you know, she was going to move in there. She'd have a boyfriend that'd probably come in and out, but she was going to live by herself. She was attractive, and of course, he was not asking any questions. And that always helps too. I'm telling you, men are easy when you got an attractive undercover agent. <laughs> I had her on. Uh, if you ever look back at that, Nay Reyes, uh, we had one guy put her in with, and, and he was trying to get her to like sleep with him and marry him and go into business with him. And he loved her, man. <laughs> so Renee went down and she she rented this apartment, and then we'd have other guys come and go like they were her boyfriends. We just sit up there and we're about a block and a half off binoculars. We, we didn't even take any pictures. It was so far off, and mostly it was his night, and we couldn't have gotten any pictures, but we could get license numbers and we could have started identifying people by license numbers and then somebody drive by and pick up that tag and go take a look at him later on and say yeah he's one of them going in and out and so we identified probably 20 25 different guys going in then we got done with that then that u.s attorney took all those names and he paneled a grand jury and i don't know if you have this in australia or not grand jury investigating gambling operation because we had the main bookie from the mob bookie an older guy come down there several times and you could see him talking to these younger bookies they'd go outside and talk and so they were giving them all immunity from prosecution and then they'd have to answer questions for the grand jury we have the crime commission which is Exactly like that. Okay. But okay. They have to answer the questions or they go to prison. Right. So, right. So they so get the, the chance for immunity, off they go yeah. until they decide to change their mind. And so it's not, not used for trivial stuff, it's used for serious. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the serious end of things. This U.S. attorney, he used it. Uh, he used it and used it. And he had about, I don't know, probably seven or eight young guys in jail for the duration of the grand jury because they wouldn't testify, wouldn't talk. I had a friend of my son's come to me who they were about that age, same age as this guy. He was Italian and he knew some of these guys and, and got hold of me and he said, you know, Mr. Jenkins, he said, there's a lot of fear going on in people I know. And I knew what he was talking about. And he said, I think this is ever going to be done or is there any way to stop this? <laughs> I said, you know, Polly, there is no way. It's already going. It is going to take its course. And it got so bad in the Italian community because I think the U.S. attorney might have overreached a little bit. He got some guys that just, they had to be men. They didn't really know all that much. They weren't really involved. Put them in jail. Their parents and they stirred up the whole kind of the north end of the Italian community, although most of their parents didn't live in the north end anymore. They'd moved out to the suburbs. But they created a movement and it's called the Basta, which Basta in Italian means enough. And they had t-shirts and they'd go down in front of the courthouse and protest and get the news to come down. And they were upset for a while. I used to have one of those Boston t-shirts. I wish I'd have kept it. I can't find it anywhere. So you had that too. Yeah, we had it here with the Hangdretta up north. After they murdered the member of parliament who discovered enormous marijuana plantations, he went missing. And obviously all hell broke loose. He went missing. So they started to close these cannabis growing things down and the Italians kicked off and said, oh, we're not doing anything, we're not doing anything. But the problem was they just kept finding hundreds and hundreds of kilos and pounds of the damn stuff. So it was kind of an empty argument because 
it just kept turning up. So, eh, what are you going to do? That kind of brings up the question, the legalization of marijuana. Have you guys not done that yet? They Even in Kansas City, they take away any penalties inside the city for possession of smaller amounts. In New South Wales, up to half an ounce is a decriminalized offense. We've got ACTs decriminalized. We haven't got like stores where you're able to purchase it, but there's a lot of of, of decriminalization going on, which has helped the courts out a lot. But then on the other end of the thing, we've got a lot of cartels bringing crystal meth in and all that garbage. So you've got all kinds of other problems starting up, you know. I've noticed I've been involved in the war on drugs since the early 70s when it was first named the war on drugs. As you watch that, if it's not one thing, it's another. Back in the day, it was heroin. And then it was cocaine. And then it was rock cocaine. Then it's back to heroin again. Then it's uh, crystal meth, oxycotton or oxycodone. And then it'll go back to heroin again. That's exactly right. It, it, it won't win, you know. No. Uh, every day go to the courts and you've seen the, the guys, the same people lined up for the same stupid. <laughs> and they're in there week in, week out. And yeah. it just goes on and on and on and on. And, you know, my, my own personal views are my own, but, I don't ever think they're going to win that one. No, (laughs) no. There's no winning or losing to that. There's just maintaining the status quo. And And elections and politicians. Right. And until they take a look at it as a medical problem, start treating it, the demand. Yeah, that's right. Once you stop the demand, then supply just dries up and they got to go on and do something else. And, And it would make society better. Make society better anyhow. It does. It does. So. One other thing I was going to ask you about, you guys had a war around the River Keys area in Kansas. You mentioned it a couple of times. How bad was that when that was, I mean, from what I understand, it was an area where people used to go and eat and all the rest of it with their families. Yeah. But then the mob wanted to open clubs, so they started blowing stuff up, so then no one (laughs) went there and shut the whole damn thing down, really. Yeah. Well, it was... uh, uh it was kind of a tempest in a teapot that uh, in a way got blown out of proportion. You can't control people's opinions and how they view things. And there was some truth there. Everything you said is right. It just, the actual actions though, as these guys were trying to move their clubs down into this area, which was immensely successful. We now have a successful area just like it that we paid a lot of money to have brand new buildings built and have this entertainment district right next to downtown. Well, this was an entertainment. Yeah, this was a hip, cool entertainment district right next to downtown made out of old buildings and grassroots operation that they didn't get any tax money or any tax breaks. They just rehab these old buildings and open restaurants, small bars clubs and everything. The mob, you know, since it was right next to the city market, the mob feels like they have kind of proprietary interest over anything around the city market and have ever since they came here in the 1900s. And a couple of three, the son of a mob guy was one of the more successful bar owners down there early on, and they tried to extort money from him and he wouldn't pay him. Pressure on him or something. And- yeah, yeah. And they killed his dad. And, oh. and, and so then the one explosion, we really only had one explosion. We had two. Another one was kind of, was an insurance job too i think it was one of the early strip clubs had like a fire which i think set off a propane explosion or something i managed to get out while the going was good <laughs> yeah 
It, but we had one explosion, and it was just, I think it was an accident, to be quite honest. Popular myth was that it was the mob blew this building up, and after that, nobody came down to the River Key because it was such a huge explosion. There's one great big building that was owned by this son of the mob guy who had been killed. He knew he had to get out of town. He was raised in that subculture. He was not really part of it, but he was raised in it. Was he one of the Sevillas? He was a Bonadonna. His name was Bonadonna. Bonadonna. Okay. And the people who were extorting money from him was the Camisanos. Okay. And the Camisanos were kind of like the Sevillas were the ruling class, shall we say, of the mob hierarchy. And the Camisanos were more the worker bees and extortionists, the really tough guys, the guys that had the crews out doing high-end burglaries and stealing, handled the shoplifters. There's a huge business in buying property from shoplifters and then selling it out at retail outlets they had down in the area. They had that kind of action going and they tried to extort some money from this young guy who owned a bar whose dad was a Bob guy and they ended up killing him because he wouldn't do like they asked. This young guy, after his father got killed, was starting to lay low and he owned a building. He and his brother owned a building down there, one of these big old buildings, and they had an insurance policy on it. He needed to get out. He knew he had to leave town and he had this hundred thousand dollar insurance policy on this old building that he probably paid maybe ten thousand dollars for and had a couple of clubs in it but they were not doing very well you know he just rented out space and he needed to lay low and this building blew up but when it blew up i would say my speculation is they did the old trick of opening a gas pipe in the basement when they closed everything closed down they go back in open a gas pipe in the basement unscrew it and let that gas start filling the basement and then having a simple device down there and we used to call it a johnny green trigger what that is there was an arsonist famous arsonist in kansas city named johnny green and he would take a book of those folding matches and stick a cigarette in the book burning it would burn down you know when you fold down the cover when it burned down hit the sulfur on those matches it would flare up and that gas would have filled the basement by then and i think they had too long of a cigarette on there or something because it really i mean it blue leveled the whole place it leveled the whole place i got a guy it's in my movie gangland wire that one guy chuck haddix tells a story he was managing a restaurant about a block away and he had a couple of bus boys that gone out in the parking lot to smoke a joint before they finished up their work that evening and he said when that explosion went off he said it shook the restaurant a block away and he heard a furious pounding at the back door and he opens up the door and there's these two guys standing there and he said, I looked at him, and they were like, obviously shook up. And he said, man, that must have been some dynamite shit you were smoking out there in the parking lot. <laughs> Chuck said the next day, and this was a really nice prime rib restaurant that was immensely popular. The next day, people didn't come in. No, they just didn't come in after that. And the whole thing within six months, everybody just closed down because of that one bombing, which was probably an insurance dig. Yeah. So it's... Uh, that's eh, just one of those things, I guess. That's for sure. All right, Dan, we've been on this for about an hour now, so uh, I think I need to go get something to eat anyhow. How about you? Probably need to go to bed. What time is it there in Australia? It's uh, 10 o'clock? Yep, it's right on 10 o'clock. Right on 10 o'clock. Great chatting, Gary. 7 o'clock here. For the foreseeable future, I'm going to keep them going. I really appreciate you. and Be good chatting. All right. Leaks. My wife's going <laughs> to have my balls in a sling. All right. All right, Dan. All right. Good night. Yeah. Bye. Bye. If you're a veteran and you believe you have problems that might be from 
PTSD that's connected to your service time, call your local vet center or the local VA hospital in your area, or there's a national hotline, 1-800-273-8255, and press 1 if you're a vet. You can go to www.ptsd.va.gov, and this site contains a lot of interesting information and a lot of good resources. When the COVID's over, as we say, when the COVID-19 virus is over and everybody's getting back to work, you can hit me up for a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on my Venmo app, Gangland Wire. I've got my two movies out there, Brothers Against Brothers, The Sabella Spiro War, and Gangland Wire, which is the kind of the story behind the movie Casino, the story about the mob-worn Kansas City that led to the uncovering of the skimming information. Got Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Get the Kindle version. You can link. I've linked the wiretaps, actual audio from wiretaps to sections in the book. Good evening, folks. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.